Well, let me pray. Well, Father, um, uh, such a rich word. We ask, please, that you would help us um, have hearts and minds that are open to consider and dig in. But please, we pray particularly that you might transform us, that you might help us take to heart these words, that we would, um, that we would show ourselves to be those that are, are in the vine. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last uh, couple of weeks we've been talking about the Holy Spirit as we've been going through John chapter 14, uh, now into 15 and then into 16. These, as I said last week, these few chapters really are the most condensed and richest teaching on the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in the Bible. And uh, it's the words of Jesus on that last night before he was betrayed in that upstairs room with his disciples. And I know that as we do that, as we start this conversation around the Holy Spirit, it triggers all kinds of discussions about a particular movement, that was amongst us uh, in the Christian world for the last bunch of decades, the last 50 years or so. Um, what many have perceived uh, to be the spirit movement of the church, the branch of the Christian church that many saw as the symbol being the dove, do you know, um, uh, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus, uh, the Spirit came down as a dove. Um, there, you, you might think of names for this movement, um, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement and so on. Uh, the, the problem with those labels, though, is that these movements are now very broad. They're very broad movements and like evangelicalism, various labels are tricky these days because there's such um, diversity in them and so on. So just be cautious about all that uh, as we move through. Um, All I say won't fit into everybody in all of that part, you see. But when we do start talking about the Holy Spirit, his person and work, um, we can't help but engage... Well, we ought not avoid talking about some foundational issues uh, that do become quite painful, especially if you've uh, had as your background and influence in these very spirit movements. Um, And I know for some I've been hearing news and talking with some of you that it's been actually quite painful as you've reflected on what the Bible's teaching, your experience, what's gone on for you in the past. Uh, You've lived through it and uh, it's it's been quite, quite hurtful for you. I want to say don't avoid the pain. Most of our lives is lived trying to avoid the pain. But um, that's the pruning work of God. Jesus here talks about the Father who prunes. And one of the ways in which he does prune is by bringing his word to bear, uh, that we might rethink, reshape, be challenged, confronted, bear painful things. And I want to suggest this morning that the pruning work of the Lord Jesus, the Father, will be, um, in those of you who have had some history there, but it will also be amongst those who haven't had any history there. Because the the pruning work of God this morning will speak into our cultural movement as well as a Christian church. So it will come for all of us uh, and praise God for that. Um, This section, chapter 15, doesn't mention, well the part we're looking at particularly, doesn't mention the Spirit directly, but the Lord Jesus will come back to that topic again. As I say, there's another series of chunks through these sections that he deals with the Spirit. But what he does focus on is what we might call power. The issue of power. The power to create a fruitful Christian life. You see, he doesn't use the word power, of course, but he does talk about fruit. And he talks about the absolute necessity that Christians produce fruit. Uh, In fact, verse 2, the gardener cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Wow, this really matters that you bear fruit. As a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you don't, he cuts it off. He repeats it. We talked last week about the, um, 
the importance of repetition. If you see the idea repeated, it becomes a very important one there. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. So branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. There's a really very serious edge to what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, The importance of bearing fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, the consequences of that is the judgment of the Father who will cut you off uh, from the vine. Massively important. And in all of this, because he is talking about the need to bear fruit, uh, the importance of how much it matters that you bear fruit, uh, the, question, the questions that come for us are, um, where's the source of power for this fruit? You, you know, how can I get the power to produce this fruit? Uh, the question of what that fruit actually is. How do I know if fruit is being produced in my life? What do I look for to see whether the fruit is there or not? And I want to suggest thirdly, as we go through this uh, this morning, uh, it's the issue of how can we tap into that power to ensure that fruit is created. Now, I use the language of power in all of this topic because this does tap directly into the modern spiritual movement that we've seen in these last decades. Many, now, um, the motivations for this modern movement are many and varied and different in different people. So I'm going to generalise, but please just accept that it is a generalisation. Um, there were lots of good motivations. There were, I mean, I, I was converted into a church uh, where all of this happened, so I lived through it. Um, it, it. Lots of people found themselves sitting in church that they felt was asleep. It was dead, it was fruitless. And they wanted to see much more of God. They saw rather just middle-class Christians meeting in respectable groups of people, holy huddles, that were just about doing good and they'd come to church and they'd disappear and they didn't come to church often because they'd had so many other things, but they'd come and they'd stick their head in while they lived their life doing all they wanted to do. And lots of Christians saw this and said, this can't be it, there must be more. Where is the genuine fruit of the Spirit amongst us? Where's the power for Christian living? And they longed for something more. Now that is all good. There was something wonderful and noble. But I want to suggest that where they looked for the answer was itself problematic and created problems. So we want to go there this morning, the power for Christian living. It matters, as I say, because Jesus elevates this issue massively that you need to produce fruit. Fruit needs to be there. Otherwise, the father, the gardener, cuts you off. Um, Jesus is as plain as it can be. So the three questions I want to wrestle with is, um, what is the source of power in the Christian life? first one Uh, what what is the fruit that that power produces how do you know if you're producing fruit or not you say what is that fruit and third how do we tap into it how do we get it how do we keep it they're the three things we're going to tackle as we roll through this text let me take you the first one what is the source of power in the christian life now i'm going to say a very obvious answer so i'm going to do a lot more than just say the answer because the obvious the answer is very obvious and it's a one word answer what's the source of power in the christian life Jesus, it's, it's there, isn't it? I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. Um, uh, verse 4, remain in me as I saw. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Who is Jesus is the vine. There is the source of power. But what I want to suggest to you is that this passage not only tells us what the source of power is, but why it matters so much that he is the source. And that there is no other source. That you don't look elsewhere except in Jesus. And it's there in those first number of words, I am the true vine. 
They're the key. They're the key. Jesus here, of course, picks up an agricultural image, the image of a grapevine, if you don't know what a vine is. And I dare say for many 21st century Westerners, the only time we ever see grapes is in a bag in Coles, right? And, or in the fridge at home. I don't know how it got there, but somehow it arrived in my fridge. And um, where's that stuff come from? Well, let me just give you a quick little... Uh, my expertise in horticulture, right, and uh, agriculture. Um, of course, what we're talking about here is a vine, a grape vine, a vine that produces fruit, and the kind of fruit it produces is beautiful and good fruit. That's a, it's a very positive image, the grape vine that makes wine, that gladdens the heart of men and women and so on. Now, of course, um, the, the vine is rooted in the ground. It has a very short, thick, uh, as it gets older, thick um, um, trunk, which then, you know, off into many branches, and, uh, and these branches are of little value. You chop them off, you can't use them for firewood, you can't use them for anything, right? They're just nothing, except that they produce fruit. And the whole thing is designed to produce fruit. Grapes that might produce uh, wine. A whole industry is built around those vines so that they not only produce fruit, but to produce good fruit and produce more fruit. And that industry includes uh, the need to trim off dead branches, to... Uh, uh, prune those branches that are producing and so on. You know, you, you, just to remind you of all this, that's the image, you see. Everyone got that? Oh. <laughs> but that's not the image. That's not actually the background. And the hint is there in the word true. Do you see? Chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. Now, what does the use of the language true vine suggest Jesus is thinking about vines? I am the true vine suggests what? There's a vine that's not the true vine. So he's making a contrast. This is, one of the la- this is the last I am statement of Jesus. He makes a number of I am, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and he makes a number of I am statements. This is the last one of those. Uh, I am the true vine. But what he's doing in using this I am statement is alluding to the fact that there has been another vine of which he is now the true one. That's the background. And it's trading on a massive history of thought in the Bible, in the Old Testament. This is not the first time the vine language has been used and fruitfulness and so on. It's used again and again in the Old Testament. That's its background. Uh, It's used in Psalm 80. Uh, You get it in Isaiah 5. You get it in Jeremiah 2. You get it in Ezekiel 19, a number of places. And it's always used of the nation Israel. The vine is the nation Israel. Um, And wherever it's used, it's used to say that Israel has failed as the vine. And I want to show you, come back with me. This is one of those passages that is worth flipping back to look at, Isaiah chapter 5. And as Ben said, it's great to have Ben and Bethany, it's great to have the family come. It's been a big move, but I think they're secretly thrilled to now be on the coast in a place that's warmer, though today is not that at all. It's your fault, we're saying, Ben, that you you brought this. But um, great to have him with us on the pastoral team. Come to Isaiah 5. Uh, many, many centuries before the Lord Jesus. Now, what you have in the first bunch of verses there is singing of a, of a vineyard uh, that the, loved, the one who is loved is planted on a fertile hillside, so built a watchtower, made all the things in place that this could produce great food, fruit. But look at verse 2, halfway through. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad. Now, there's the context. Um, now, now, he then appeals to Israel and says, what more could I have done to ensure that my vineyard produced good fruit? There's verse 4. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do. Because it's produced only bad fruit, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to tear it down. I'll make it a wasteland. And then to make it abundantly clear what he's talking about, verse 7. 
The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. But here's the thing. He looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. He looked for good fruit, which he'd prepared and developed this vine for, but all he found was bad fruit. Now there is a profound and powerful background that sat in the history of Israel. And you now come to Jesus many centuries later. He is in the upstairs room the night before he's crucified. He's with his disciples, just his disciples. This is private teaching to his disciples, which John, of course, was there and remembers by the work of the Spirit to bring to us. And he gives them these critical truths and these deepest things. And his last great I am saying is, I am the true vine. Now, he's not just using a convenient agricultural image. He's causing them to rethink the whole way they view the history of their nation. This is utterly profound. He's wanting them to think, rethink the place of Israel and who Jesus is, the one who's seated with them, standing with them. I am the true vine. That is, the vine of the past, Israel. I am the vine that Israel was meant to be. I am the true vine. Which is a, it's a massive statement and an exciting statement. I'll tell you why it's exciting. Because what he's doing is, he's re- well, let me take you through these steps. He's replacing Israel. Now many people, if you've got any background in theology and these discussions, there's a whole critique of a thing called replacement theology uh, and there's some legitimacy to this idea that um, uh, we ought not replace Israel with the church and so that is known as replacement theology, church replaces Israel. There is a critique that needs to be offered there. But there is a replacement theology in the Bible and the replacement is this, Jesus replaces Israel. Israel is replaced by the person of Jesus, or better, fulfilled by Jesus, the true vine. Notice what's being said here again about the person of Jesus, or what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the fulfilment of history. He is the centre of history. All that happened in the past, the nation of Israel, all that happened in the past was in anticipation of him, the true vine. There's a language for it, it's called type, anti-type. The anticipation is a type of the thing to come and finally the true thing comes, the true vine, the true Israel. All that Israel was meant to be. Do you see what's being said here about the Lord Jesus Christ? The, The Israel was known as the Son of God, little less. But finally, in anticipation, this points towards the coming of the true Son of God. Out of Egypt I called my son, Matthew chapter 2, which is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is the true Israel. All that happened in the past was anticipating the coming of Jesus. The whole existence of it was for the coming of Jesus. And this reveals the great movement of God's work in history. Sets things up. He creates the nation. He redeems it as his people. He creates the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice, gives the law. And all of this is anticipating the moment, the coming into history of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was not an afterthought. I am the true vine. You see, Jesus is the source of power, the true vine. Remain in me. You can do nothing unless you remain in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Why? Because he's the centre of history. He is the very purpose of history. And in fact, he is the source of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the source of life. He is the source of all human life. He is the source of spiritual new life. He's the source of life into eternity. You only find life humanly in him. You only find life eternally in him. You only find spiritual restoration back with God in him. And as you remain in him. And in all of this, the centre of history, the purpose of history, the source of life, he is all of that because he's the very person of God himself. He is God, clothed in human flesh, walking amongst us. He is the incarnate God. He is the Word of God. And if we could look back into eternity past and into the mind of God, if that were ever possible, the one God, the creator of all things, Father, Son and Spirit, the Father, Son and Spirit determined together, in their oneness, if you like, to create a universe in which the Son is glorified and magnified. That the Father gives all to Him through the work of the Spirit, that all might see Him for who He is. And finally, of course, the Son will give all back to the Father. There's a conspiracy of love and glory between the Father and Son through the Spirit. All of human history... All of Old Testament history happened to prepare the way for the coming of the true vine. Jesus, he is the source of all spiritual life because he mediates the very power of God. Things that were said of this man, like no other human. Um, Now notice this, and I'm going to be provocative to make the point. In the upper room, Jesus didn't say the key to power in the spiritual realm is being in the Spirit. He didn't say that. He said the key to power in the spiritual realm is being in Him, is abiding in Him, remaining in Him, not abiding in the Spirit. Notice that. But notice further, and here's where I'm being provocative, but notice further, this isn't very different from saying be filled with the Spirit. It's not very different from saying be filled with the Spirit or having the Spirit dwell in us, which is what he does say in chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. To have Spirit dwell in you, who is the Spirit of Christ, is to have Christ in you, is to be in Jesus, because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who reveals the Son, that we might be united, connected by the work of the Spirit to the Son, who is the source. Do you see how the work of God functions? But the key here is not talk of the Spirit, but talk of the Son, who is the work of the Spirit. Is this getting through, making sense? There's a banging on this for a few weeks now. There cannot be two kinds of Christianity. You cannot have a Jesus Christianity and a Spirit Christianity. That is to separate what can't be separated and demonstrates, at the very least that there's a misunderstanding about the work and purpose of the Spirit, 
who is to testify to Jesus and bring us to Jesus and unite us to him. There's a mis- at least a misunderstanding. Or it perhaps evidences that those who talk so much about the Spirit and the, the key is the Spirit and so on, actually aren't in touch with the Spirit of Christ. Are, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, pursuing a different Spirit at the very worst. These things are very serious. And, and let me make this very particular with a very trivial illustration. I'm, I'm going to go trivial, so don't get all head up about this one, but I'm just going to, it helps make a point, and I'm going to try and soften it as we go. But it's interesting in the early years, the early decades of the Christian, uh, the coming of Jesus, uh, the apostolic ministry, in the early, the, the end of the first century, beginning of the second, the, the symbol for Christianity was a fish. Because the Greek word for fish, ichthus, was uh, um, the first letters of a little statement about um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So the fish was a symbol of saying, I'm for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, you see. But the fish symbolised the person of Jesus, who he is and what he did. Uh, Shortly after the key, the, the symbol of Christianity became the cross, where people with, I think, considerable insight became aware that the central piece of what Christianity is, is the person of Jesus, he's the source. But particularly in the person of Jesus is his work to die for us, to lay down his life for his friends, to be the substitution who dies in our place that we might be forgiven. And so the cross became the symbol of Christianity. Churches were built in the shape of a cross. The cross was hammered in over graves. People wore the cross and so on, draw crosses. Uh, the cross became the symbol. But Interestingly, significantly, concerning the last 50 years, the symbol for many people of Christianity has become the dove. Now, it's a trivial thing in one sense. And people are, in a sense, just wanting to say we're part of a movement that's differentiated from the dead, middle-class, fruitless thing where there's a sense of that. But you see the concern? What it can often display is a failure to appreciate... The coming of the dove at the baptism of the Lord Jesus was to testify to who Jesus was, not to the Spirit. The very purpose of the Spirit is to point us to Christ. Now, let's all go out in the car park and find out who's got a dove on their car is not what I want you to do, right? Um, And if you've got a dove, just understand what you've got the dove to point to Jesus. Yeah, so that's, but it just says something about where our culture Christianly has shifted. The source of the power of Christian living is the true vine being in the true vine and the true vine is the person of Jesus. And the Spirit brings us to know him. The aim is to abide in him because without him we can do nothing. But with him we can do all things. We have life. There's the first point. The second point. What is the fruit that abiding in Jesus will produce in our lives? That's the evidence that we're abiding and remaining in Jesus. What's the fruit? What's the fruit that we need to be looked for to see whether we actually are alive in the spirit realm? Um, Well, the temptation at this point is to just guess. You know, what, what's the fruit? So someone asks, we're sitting here and someone says, what's the fruit? Yeah, I see he's talking about fruit. Well, I don't know. Um, maybe it's 
And the Bible's gone, listen to me, I've got the answer. Well, I wonder whether I should be. The Bible's gone, open me up, I've got the answer. So the, the, the thing to do here is not just to think what it might be, but let the Bible tell you what it is. That's the answer, isn't it? Let me take you through what the Bible teaches us the fruit is. Because there have been many weird and wonderful ideas that have been around the place. Um, uh, many have suggested that the fruit is about... Um, entering into a wordless mysticism where you're meditatively connected in some extraordinary way to the divine being. And so you need to get away from distractions if you want to remain in and be in and get away from distractions, put aside words and just centre down, which sounds very Eastern, which is largely what it is. Or the pursuit of a kind of singing where the singing is about... Um, uh, getting into that experience where you're just caught up and the words have gone and I'm just now united. And so many people talk about praising your way into the presence of God as if the way you get united and connected is through praise. These are all guesses about what it is, what's the fruit and how you get there. Let's let the Bible teach us on these things. Just to actually say, singing's Singing is good. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Right? But come with me to Isaiah 5 again. Keep your finger there in John 15, Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 is a good place to start because it's not the immediate context. We'll come to the immediate context. But what it does is it gives us the context of, of God talking about the vine and fruit. And we get some hints there, Isaiah 5. Look there at um, uh, verse the second half of verse 7. Now remember the context, I wanted this vine to produce fruit, but it only yielded bad fruit. Verse 7, he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What do you think the good fruit is from Isaiah 5? Righteousness. Justice. People who live in our world righteously and justly. That's the fruit he wanted in his people. But he only found... Now you come to John 15. Now that's not the immediate context. As I say, it's a hint for us. It's not the key, the determinative. The, he, the key is the immediate justice, the, the immediate context. And John 15, so let's see what this teaches about, what the fruit is. Now, at the first, in these first many verses, Jesus just talks about fruit. He doesn't say what it is. But as you go through, it starts to become obvious. Come with me, to, and it's a series of steps, verse 8. Let me show you there. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit... Showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, bearing much fruit could be justice and righteousness. And it probably includes that. But this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Whatever this fruit is, it will show the world that you are the disciples of Christ. Now, does that trigger a thought for you? Has Jesus ever talked about the kind of behaviour that will show the world that he, you're, we're his disciples? Where is it? It is in Galatians 5, but it's, it's John 13. So come back to John 13. Now, John 13 is in the same upper room on the same night about 20 minutes earlier. He's just washed, washed his disciples' feet 
And he says to them in verse uh, 34, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What is the kind of activity that will make evident to the world that we are his disciples? The love of one another. The lover of Christian brothers and sisters. So you come now to John 15, 20 minutes later. And Jesus says, verse 18, It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Which suggests the fruit that he's thinking of is love. And it's interesting, verse 9, he immediately talks about love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. He's talking about love all the way through here. In verse 12, my command is this, the command that you are to keep to remain in his love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. I'd suggest to you that what is very clear for Jesus is the fruit of justice and righteousness displays, it particularly, displays itself particularly in the love that we have for one another. By this, much fruit, you will show yourself to be my disciples. Love. Now there's more to it than that too, although I think verse 16, if you come down there a little bit further, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, which raises a whole series of questions about the sovereign work of God in our election and predestination and so on, but we can't go there. Um, He did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, what is that fruit? That you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. It could be, again, the idea of going and bearing the fruit of love for one another, but what does the language of go and bear fruit sound like? Jez mentioned it earlier. The Great Commission is very, it's very lined up with the thought of Jesus in Matthew 28. And I'd suggest to you that what's going on here is that Jesus says, um, my desire is that you produce fruit, the fruit of love. And that that fruit might display itself in the fruit of going and producing more fruit in loving the world to bring them to come to faith in Christ. Salvation. Now, this is confirmed in John 12. If you come back to John 12, you'll see Jesus here talks uh, in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, literally in the Greek, it produces much fruit. What's the much fruit? Conversions. Salvation. And so again, a short time later, he's talking about fruit. Go and make fruit. Uh, Bear fruit. And I think what he's teaching us is this. That the fruit that is evidence of you being tapped into the source of power, the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit, is the fruit of being like Christ, love. The love for others. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, being tapped into Jesus such that I become more like Jesus and I take on the heart of Jesus to so love the world that I will seek to take the gospel to the world. 
and see disciples made. I'll be like Christ in both character and desire. He's the one who comes to seek and save the lost, who loves the world so much that he gave his life for it. And so what is the fruit? It's changed character to be like Jesus, particularly referencing love for one another and a love of the world that we bring the gospel word to the world. Um, It's the Great Commission. Um, And all of this flows out of obedience. Verse 10, keeping my commands. Um, The command to be like Jesus. Which is to say, putting it another way, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is far more important than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, to be provocative. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is far more concerning for Jesus than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It does not matter that you, whether you evidence the gifts of the Spirit as much as you evidence the fruit of the Spirit. Because you'll be cut off if there's no fruit of the Spirit. But there's no concern that you'll be cut off if you don't speak in tongues. The source of power is Jesus and the thing that the power of Jesus produces in our life if we're remaining in him, the fruit is the fruit of the spirit. The character of Christ, the heart of Christ, the love of Christ for the world that we might be part of disciple making and loving one another. Not in mere words, which I want to suggest is an important clarification about church. Now, this is a tough day to say, come to church, because it's terrible weather. Um, But you're here, so let's... (laughs) But how can you love one another if you're hardly here? How can you love one another if you're not with one another? So the source of power is Jesus. The thing that the power produces is the fruit of the Spirit, love. And the problem is that's also unexciting. We want power to be victorious. We want power to be spectacular and miraculous. But the power of Christ in your life is about obeying Christ and being like Christ. Okay, third. How do we tap into this power to see this fruit produced? How do we make sure we tap in? How do you get in and remain in? That's pretty much the burden of Jesus' message here, in fact. Um, You need to be in me, the true vine, to produce fruit. My father wants you to produce. He's always wanted fruit. How do you be that? How do you remain? Well, again, the temptation is to guess. How do you get in, remain in? Centering down, mystical experiences. Let's look at what the Bible teaches again on this one. Um, The clue is there, verse 3. How do you get in? You are already clean because of the word... I have spoken to you. Now, just a bit of background here. The word clean is very similar to the word prune in Greek. There's only a letter difference, a couple of letters difference. And it's a play on words about being pruned and being clean. It's hard to translate into English. But the point is that um, the pruning activity and the cleaning activity are all associated with the same thing. And the point he makes in verse 3 is that you are clean, that is, you are You are bound into the vine. You are established in the vine because of the word I have spoken to you. Because my word is life. It's the gospel word. It's the word of truth. 
that brings me the truth of who I am, who Jesus is, how it is that I can be forgiven and established into relationship with the Holy God by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Next week we celebrate. It's by that word that you are brought life. As you respond in faith to that word, by the work of the Spirit, you come into the vine. How do you remain in the vine? Well, verse 10, uh, verse 7, let's see it play out here. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Whether we've got time to deal with that, we'll see in a moment. But remain in me and my words remain in you. What does the word remaining in us mean? It's paying heed to those words. It's storing those words up in our hearts. It's believing them and entrusting ourselves to them, entrusting ourselves to the word Jesus, believing those words, heeding those words, obeying those words. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commands, my word, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is back to all that Jesus was saying last week. Words, Jesus' words are critical. Believe them, pay heed to them, keep them. Because in that series of actions, you show your devotion to Jesus as your Lord. And you are remaining in him, with him as your Lord. Um, And notice again, actually, the context here. There's nothing mystical about it. Jesus is saying to a group of Jews who knew what it was to be the vine that had failed. He says, if you truly want to actually be connected with God... The key to that is now no longer through Israel. The key is through the true vine, me. I have replaced Israel as the means by which you come and know hope and life in God. It's not by becoming a Jew or an Israelite. It's rather by becoming a follower of me. I am the source of life. Respond to my words. Now, right here is not only a critique of modern spirit movements, but it's a critique of dead, respectable Christianity. So here's where it turns on us. Here is the pruning work of God amongst us. Christianity is not about being moral, respectable, a good person. It's about a relationship with a living person, the Lord Jesus. A relationship with him where you recognise that he is my Lord and my Saviour. That his words rule my life, not my words. His opinions matter, not mine. And that is profoundly different to morality. Morality is finding a set of rules that you agree with and a life that you want to live and being respectable. Um, Being in relationship with Jesus, obeying him will lead you to look moral, but it'll be driven by a very different reason. I choose to live the way I live and do what I do and act in the way I act because my Lord, whom I love, tells me to. And pleasing him is what matters to me, not respectability. There is the critique for us. It is so easy in our world to drift into going through the motions, keeping the rules, doing what people expect. And what Jesus is saying to remain in me is to recognise that when I come into your life as Lord, I don't come as a silent passenger. I come with an authoritative voice. 
I come with my opinions on how you ought to live. And the aim, if you were to remain in me, is to live all your days seeking to follow what I call on you to do. Not what others, but what I say. Pleasing me is what Christian life is about. Do you see the difference between morality and Jesus and relationship with him? You know, this goes back to uh, one of the reasons for the spirit movement. It was often a reaction to the dead morality of churches, which was sometimes true in their critique. Sometimes it was true that many churches were dead. But one of the problems was the, the, the assessment of dead churches was based on how they sang. You know, how many people had their, had their hands in the air? How many people were closing their eyes? How many, much emotion was expressed? And so what I'm partly wanting to suggest to you is, um, it's a complex thing. If you love the Lord Jesus and want to please him, you will sing with all your heart. And if you want to raise your hands and do that, I love it that you do. Do it. Go for it. But do not judge a church on the 20 minutes of singing as to whether they're in touch with the power of God in Jesus. How do you know if the fruit is being developed, love, Christ-likeness? You can't see that in 20 minutes of singing. You can't see that in the pat on the back and the hug. You can only see that Monday to Saturday in the life of substance where people break outside of their friendship groups and actually love people who are not like them and walk alongside them in their needs and care for them genuinely and sacrificially give to the work of the gospel. You can't see that in 20 minutes of singing. And part of the problem in the history was people turned to judge on that small piece, failing to appreciate the fruit that really mattered was the substance of love and Christ-likeness. Now, I hasten to say again, singing matters. Because if you do love this Lord Jesus and have been saved and rescued by this Lord Jesus and he is alive in your life by the Spirit, you want to give expression to that and from your heart magnify him. Don't just do a job called singing, but don't judge us also on the way we do it. Brothers and sisters, the power for Christian living is Jesus. The fruit is the character of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. That is the key to it all. The way you tap into this is the word of Jesus, the spirit of truth, the word inscripturated by storing it up in your hearts and seeking by the Spirit to obey it. That's Christian life. Powerful and compelling and beautiful. We will have great joy in it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these wonderful words that the Lord Jesus delivers us. And we pray you'd help us take them to heart. Help us please see what it is to remain in Jesus by paying heed obeying his word by stirring that, storing that word up in our hearts uh, that we might learn, therefore, to be like Jesus, people of love. Um, and we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.